You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Panos. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Hi Mark, what have you got for us today? Hi Leo, today I want to talk about the student ombudsman. So the student ombudsman is usually a senior academic member of staff of a university who independently reviews undergraduate, postgraduate and higher degree research student complaints that may have not been resolved through academic unit and faculty processes. The student ombudsman can also be responsible for the independent review of student academic misconduct appeals. So first of all, what do we mean by a student academic complaint? It's a complaint concerning a decision a member of university staff or a committee did that affects a student's academic experience. And at what point does a student request help from a student's ombudsman? Well, this varies a little bit from university to university. But in general, students may lodge their appeal against the finding of, let's say, a faculty investigation committee if the appeal is based either on a lack of due process or if there is new and substantial evidence that had not been previously considered. And as with any appeal, there are obviously a couple of outcomes. So the appeal can be denied it can be upheld, or the ombudsman might see that there is enough evidence that the matter could be resolved due to negotiation. Where does a student go if they're still not happy with the decision of the student ombudsman? They can then appeal to the senior management of the university, which is usually a deputy vice chancellor. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of student ombudsman. So... Who appoints the ombudsman and and reviews who that is? Uh, That would be a university process. So the university would put this out for tender. It's usually an internal appointment because the person needs to be very well versed in the workings and dealings and policies of the university. Would the university not then have an incentive to hire somebody who's going to toe the party line, to, to not rock the boat too much, to not take the student's sides too often? I don't think it's a matter of rocking the boat or taking student signs. It's interpreting the policy. And the ombudsman, from my dealings with people in that role, they very strictly follow what the policy is. And the policy is written to protect both students and staff members. Fair enough. And what powers does the ombudsman have? I guess they can reverse decisions that have been made, but could they fire staff? They don't have... Because the student ombudsman deals mainly with complaints from staff Members. If a staff member has done misconduct, then that's not something that a ombudsman would make a decision on. The ombudsman purely deals with a decision, independently reviews, and has the power to overturn decisions. Right. And, and I guess how many layers of complaint process would a student have to go through before they reached the ombudsman? So to, to sketch it normally, the procedure is, let's say a student has an issue with me the student normally would then approach me and say, you know, I have a problem with this, can you review it? So we would try to do it informally. If the student is then unhappy with what I say, 
They then would go to the head of the academic unit, which is usually a head of school. They then would go to a faculty-designated person, which is part of stage one. And once everything in stage one has been exhausted, they would then go to the student ombudsman, which would be stage two. Is there stages beyond two? Stage three is generally when you go to to a deputy vice chancellor. And stage four is when you go outside the university. All right. Well, that's probably all we can cover on the student ombudsman. Do you want to move on? Yes, Leo. Let's. What, what have you got to talk about today? Okay, so today I wanted to talk about vesting. Generally speaking, vesting is a legal term, meaning to gain an asset at a designated time. To give a familiar example, most Australians have superannuation funds, but they're not able to access their savings until retirement. It can therefore be said that your superannuation asset vests at retirement. In the context of startups, the principle of vesting is more commonly applied to shares and share options held by a company's founder or the executives. For example, an incoming CEO might be offered a share plan that in total accounts for 5% of the company's stock, with 1% delivered after the first year and the remainder vesting over the next four. In startups, the main reason vesting is used is to ensure key employees are incentivized to stick with the business long-term. Vesting allows the company to ensure that only loyal employees get a portion of ownership in the company, whilst those who leave early forfeit their rights. And that is the concept of vesting. So who negotiates these particular terms? So the terms of vesting are negotiated as part of the investment round, so We've spoken about due diligence earlier and about different rounds of investing. It it comes to a discussion between the investors, the founders, and if there are already, the executives of the company and the existing board. So technically, it has to be approved by the board in order to do anything with shares, but new investors might attach conditions of their investment that essentially demand that the board approve certain vesting terms, um, apply vesting terms to the founders or to the executive How flexible are these vesting terms? Because you mentioned superannuation. Of course, the vesting time or age of superannuation can be influenced by political decisions where they decide, where a government can decide the retirement age is going to be moved from 67 to 70. How does that work in vesting? Is there something similar where it can be agreed to change the vesting? It's generally, um, I I guess, as a superannuation fund uh, participant, you don't have much power in that process to say, no, I actually want to stick with my old date. There is more power in this world because to change the terms of the vesting, you're changing the ownership of that individual. So generally, once vesting has been established with a certain time frame, it is very unlikely to change over the course of that vesting. Perhaps new employees that come in get a different set of conditions, but you're basically grandfathered into the vesting conditions that you were set up with. And is there any form of arbitration that can happen if someone is unhappy with the vesting options being offered to them as part of an employment? Well, I guess it's all a negotiation, but if you're unhappy with the terms of your employment, your chance to fix that is to not apply for the job. I guess if the company really, really wants you, they might make the terms more attractive. If they've got other candidates who are willing to accept them who are equally as good they might just go with the other candidates. So I guess like any job interview negotiation, along with your salary package, you might also negotiate your vesting terms and the the risks and rewards are the same as demanding a high salary. 
So are there any big differences between if an employee comes in in year three versus year five in a company? Would they offer more shares up front and less shares? Or is it as the company goes on, does it go more to the vesting side? Not every employee would get share options at all necessarily. Uh, it's generally on the early employees that really are incentivized in that way. You know, most companies that you join that are well established just give you a salary and not necessarily options or shares in the company. Vesting is really critical for the founders and for the executive. That that's really who it's targeted at. So, uh, and I gave the example of an incoming CEO, and that's a classic because. There is an expectation that CEOs will get remuneration that includes company shares. Definitely don't want them to just be able to kind of come in for five days, have a 5% ownership and leave again. Um, that's very detrimental to the company. That's really who it's targeted at. The, the company leaders are likely to get set up with vesting plans. This is my final question looking at the time. For CEOs, if the board loses confidence in them, would they still retain their vesting rights? That's a really interesting question. There are clauses in their contracts that usually define whether you are a good lever or a bad lever. And that depends on whether you've you know, fulfilled your duties, whether you've fulfilled your contracts, which you will have, and that will define whether or not you get to keep your vesting rights. If you've done everything right and the board essentially declares you redundant for some reason, you should still keep those rights. But if you've been negligent, um, chances are you'll be summarily dismissed without the vesting of your shares. Uh, thank you, Leo. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. See you next time.